This is a special announcement from the Latverian Ministry of Information. Your attention is mandatory. This week's episode of this program was recorded under treacherous conditions, including aerial bombardment by Rotrubian terrorists, an underground plasma drill, commandeered by the forces of Hydra, due to the incompetence of America's so-called superheroes, and the frequent appearance of an all-consuming sonic sponge. Lord Doom wishes to advise you that there is nothing wrong with your audio equipment. Do not attempt to adjust your radios or internet devices. Rather, you should tremble in gratitude that so many of Doom's mechanical legions heroically sacrificed themselves so that you might hear anything at all of this week's conversation. Zero. Tu. Seré. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero. Tu. Seré. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good, or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you, Doombot JV15. As the announcement uh, you may have heard just a minute ago explained, the audio on this week's episode is a little bit dodgy. Actually, it's a lot dodgy. I'm just warning you right now. It's not your problem. It's our problem. Lord Doom will deal with it in time. We suspect the all-consuming sonic sponge has something to do with it. In any case, our special guest this week is the amazing Paul Tobin of Portland, Oregon. He is a novelist and comics writer. He's written... Bandette, Bunny Mask, Colder, Plants vs. Zombies, Genius Factor, Rassel Castle, and very importantly for our purposes, Doctor Doom and the Masters of Evil. However, that's not the comic we're talking about this week. Uh, we are talking this week about Astonishing Tales number one through five, and in particular the Doctor Doom serial in those issues. It was a split comic, so it occupied half of each issue. Uh, Dr. Doom serial, written initially by Roy Thomas and later by Larry Lieber, drawn initially by Wally Wood, and uh, later by a number of people, but uh, taken over uh, after its fourth episode here uh, by George Tuska. And in any case, uh, that's what's going on here. Paul, welcome to the show. What'd you make of these comics? I was really amused with the, the, the beginning, the, the very beginning with that spheroid on uh, on the moon. Because who's better at drawing the moon than Molly Wood? Yes! That one panel actually seems like it might have been straight up a moon landing shot um, when they're picking up the, the spheroid. But yeah, uh, if, you need a, if you needed a crater drawn, Wally was always the guy. Um, oh, sorry. That little grunt of anger was my friend Phil Hester, owns one of the uh, Wally Wood uh, spirit and space pages. Wow. Um, and I love Phil to death, but I hate him. I really enjoyed the complete throwaway of that beginning, too, because it's like we found this spheroid, and what is this spheroid? And it turns out to be just a message to the President of the United States that's basically doomed, just saying, yeah, I can do this, I cool, I teleported that up there, literally just to say that I could do it. We and got then, there first. Yeah, we got yeah. there first, and it was that's the beginning of your story, and it literally doesn't have any impact on anything else. No. 
other than Doom's uh, mental side. Well, well, you could say it introduces the sphere motif. Yes. Yes. It did kind of bring in the sphere motif, but they never connected the two no, sphere motifs. Because, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, when we get to the, the, the faceless one, and he is a sphere head, but I also love that aspect of, of that Marvel Comics loves to do of these two astronauts who have lived in the Marvel Universe their whole lives pick up that sphere that they found on the moon and go, this could be our first proof positive of alien life. <laughs> it's like, like you, <laughs> yeah, the buses got diverted because Galactus was standing on Times Square, you know? <laughs> it's, like, it's like proof positive. It's like they're aliens on every bus. And it's like that, that, that knocks me dead every time that that happens in Marvel Comics. I mean, New York had, you know, 800 you know, things wander from the sea to wander through town. It was like every, you know, you if you were a docksman, if you worked on the docks in New York, you knew you got like three days a week off because monsters would wander in at least 60% of it. So, so there's like a monster clause built into the, the yes, context. Absolutely, yeah. Acts of Fing Fang Foom are in every contract in the Marvel Universe. This Doom story is five installments long, like 10 pages a piece, somewhere in there. Something like that. And they changed writers in the middle of it and then changed artists at the end. And it's like, that level of inconsistency drives me nuts. I actually would love to see the scripts for this because I've seen some Roy Thomas scripts that are, shall we say, open. <laughs> I, I will always remember a Roy Thomas script that, uh, that I've seen. It was in a for Savage Sword of Conan. In the comic, it's like this four or five page scene drawn by John Muscema, where Conan comes up to the gates of this huge city and the guards give him crap and he ends up having to fight the guards and then he helps this woman get through. Um, and it's this complex thing and the Roy Thomas script for it is uh, Conan comes up to the gates and has trouble with the guards. Wow. And, I, and I, don't, I don't know if then John drew part of it and then Marvel Method you know, Roy came back in and filled in some dialogue. But at, at that point, if John had to, you know, completely come up with what trouble with the guards was, and this actually feels like, like Wally Wood is, is maybe my overall favorite artist because of his range, um, which is something I want to talk about later. But man, he could not write. <laughs> yeah. um, and this has the feel of like, like, that writing that Wally loves to do where, where things kind of pop up and it's very, very like 30s, 40s pulp. Um, so I'm kind of wondering how much of this writing, how much of this story was Wally. Again, I'd love to see these scripts because things just pop up. And I think, I mean, if you look at Wally's sketchbooks, it almost looks like a Wally sketchbook. It's like, Oh, I feel like drawing a girl for a bit, so Valeria is going to be important. I'm through drawing her, so she's literally gone from the plot <laughs> right. entirely. She's just gone. Yeah. And then um, the whole scene in the French Riviera, it's like, where did that come from? That's <laughs> so non-doom. Um, but that feels like Wally just saying, oh, I feel like drawing some pretty girls again, so where are there some girls in bikinis? French Riviera, let's throw that in there. Um so I almost I, I kind of think this might have been a Marvel method um, thing. I think Wally ended up doing a lot of the writing, and and since he never cared for writing, I think that really shows in the story. <laughs>
So you, you said you'd come up with a, a kind of like actual summary of this plot here. Oh, I don't know. There's no summary. <laughs> or, or at least... No, I said that I... I said that I sat down and explained it all to Colleen uh, and just, but I did it primarily so I could watch her eyes keep bugging out right. when I would change within a 50 page story, when I would change to just a brand new, it's like the main villain of this is Prince Rodolfo. No, I'm sorry. The main villain is the faceless one. No, the main villain is the doomsman. doomsman. No, it's Red Skull. <laughs> it's like that's 50 pages. <laughs> and it's like, they just could not make their mind up on on who the villain was and it's just everything about this story leads to two things who's busting through a wall because wally loves things busting through a wall and how can we have dr doom stand majestically on rubble that is it that's that's the summary of the story is like as long as we can move to that um we get majestic rubble to you know skip ahead and spoil a little bit at the end of the third installment, uh, Doom's castle has been taken over, which is the point at which he reveals that his castle is on a fault line and he can trigger an earthquake. And so he triggers an earthquake, reduces his own castle to rubble. And then, of course, in the next issue, Wallywood needs to draw a castle again. So, there's, so fine. Yeah, there's not a only like, oh my new castle. Not it's like it's like I've always wondered why Doctor Doom picked Lotveria. And after reading this story, I think the reason is because the peasants can rebuild an entire castle in one day. And not only that, but repair the mountain it was on. Because he destroyed the mountain with an earthquake. That was part of the earthquake. So they built a mountain and put a castle on it during the time that it took Dr. Doom, Victor, to get persnickety and throw a snit in the French Riviera, which we all know is a ticking clock. Because he throws a snit at everything. So, yeah, he's like, I'll be back in a... He, he tells his peasants, here's exacting plans of what I want. But then follows that up with, I don't want to get caught up in the minutiae. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. It's like, it's like, here's everything. Now you do it. And, and these peasants, who are the greatest craftsmen in the world, put it together. The, the closest I can come is is, is um, to skip to a different company. Uh, that time when when uh, Bruce Wayne paid for Gotham to be completely rebuilt. <laughs> and wow, the first couple of parts of this story are so robot oriented. They really are. I mean, what, like everybody past... turns out to be a robot. There's robots, and there's also a revolution in Lafayette. There's some sort of political unrest. I got the feeling that they really wanted to. Um, have a lot of reveals in this story that were never revealed. Like the Doomsman was going to be a big thing, but then it just never developed. And I mean, if you name somebody the faceless one, sooner or later you have to show his face. Right. Nope, he just he's gone. Yeah. So yeah, after four episodes of this, suddenly we have George Tuska, mm-hmm. who's another super veteran at this point. He is, yeah. He goes way back. Yeah, he seemed like crime does not pay in the 40s. Mm-hmm. I think he was a good replacement for Wally because Wally, in his superhero work, which this is definitely in that genre, is so stiff. And Tuska is kind of stiff, too. 
Um, they both like to pose their characters like they were completely, you know, disco for voguing basically all the time. And I, I kind of wanted your thoughts because you're a person that sees the the whole comics. Like earlier, I was talking about Wally as being my favorite artist. It is not because of his superhero work. I do not like his superhero work. But I like his work for EC, and I especially like his work for Mad. Um, and if you're if you're a fan of Wally Wood, you can look at his work on, on Mad, and he is so fluid and so lively. But his superhero work is so stiff. And then I look at his work on EC, which has the range too. I mean, a lot of his humor work obviously was for Mad Magazine, so you're 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 back at EC. But like, even his war stuff is far more fluid um, than his superhero stuff. And uh, and I'm theorizing that that it was Harvey Kurtzman's influence on the war comics that let him loosen up a little bit because I can like remember a Civil War story and, and some other stories where he was very fluid and uh, sort of almost a Wallywood version of Jack Davis where like mass amounts of things were happening and it all fit together whereas Wally often seemed like he was just assembling uh, several cutout characters and posing them. I, uh, I own a, a brilliant Weird Science Fantasy page by, by Wally that I love, um, but all the characters are extremely stiff, except there are some little alien creatures running around, and they're fluid and, and comical and, and happy, and it's like, that's a, it's a fascinating side of, of Wally Wood to me. Um, when Larry took over from Roy, I really feel like it was like Larry asking Roy, so what was going on? And Roy said, so I got these guys and they're ah, you know, I'm already bored. I'm just going to do what I want. And and maybe looked at a couple of pages that Wally had drawn. And, and maybe it was Wally that had to sort of like put them together because um, Kidney loves both Roy Thomas and Larry Lieber. Um, neither of them are people who have influenced my writing career. Right. The whole Doomsman Mummy escaping thing I really loved because, because, and this is, there's like three or four instances of this in the, in the 50 pages of, of Doom's incredibly bad power system in his castle. Like, like the Doomsman escapes because, uh, uh, she hits a thing with a chair (laughs) and it's like, I really love a guy, Dr. Doom, who has... I mean, obviously the Fantastic Four are his big enemies, and it's like he's taken them down before. He's he's literally won these fights, and it's like, and so I, I left a little note of like, why not the Fantastic Five of like Mister Fantastic, the Invisible Woman, Human Torch, Thing, and random girl with a chair, because she <laughs> beat him. She just beat Doctor Doom. And uh, later in the series, um, after his entire castle has been rebuilt in a day <laughs> with the entire system, um, and the Red Skull is in charge of everything, Doom comes back and, and he's fighting against his own weapons. And the way he gets past this is by tunneling underground and then throwing the switch that controls literally all the electricity in his castle. He's got a kill switch for yeah. 
what is that for, Dr. D? <laughs> and another thing, I know there's a note for this, too, because I wrote down, because it killed me. Um, speaking of Doom attacked by his own weapons, when he first comes back against the Red Skull, they shoot a rocket at him. And he's like, oh, it's the one thing I can't fight against. It's a gas rocket. And it's like, he goes unconscious because of a gas attack. And it's like, he doesn't have even a gas mask in the Doctor Doom in thing. armor. He doesn't have any, he doesn't have vents. And I, I remember writing this down seven panels before. Seven panels before he collapses because of a gas um, a gas attack. He has done one of his two creations of a vortex. <laughs> he fights with vortexes, but a gas attack takes him down. There doesn't seem to be in this story, and, and again, this is 70-71, so I agree with a certain degree of it, but um, there's literally no reason not to try to overthrow Dr. Doom, because he never, he says he's exacting the meanest revenge of all time, but all he really does is sort of let you go. In a way, my favorite part of this story is the French Riviera. And it's, it's because Doom even states that he goes there because he's seeking entertainment and diversion. And it's the only human moment in the entire thing. I mean, he strides in his armor magnificently through all these girls in bikinis, which I, which I love. <laughs> it's like, he's like the, he's dressed like the uh, 1910s Victorian or whatever. <laughs> like, it's like, well, I, I'm not quite happy with showing myself yet. Um, to the point where later uh, some, some burglars try to, to steal stuff from him, which seems like a pretty sharp thing to do. Because um, again, you are, these burglars are in the French Riviera where all these rich people who haven't fought the Fantastic Four are, are at. But you see Dr. Doom slumbering in his bed in full armor and cape, of course, which I love. That's, but yeah, that whole moment was like the only time where I felt like, I almost felt sad for, for Doom. Um, it's just like, he just wanted a little diversion. And then he got accused of cheating. Um, so so you have a, like an entire page that's Doctor Doom versus a roulette machine because he just throws one of his snits and destroys things. Oh, I'm looking at a note too that I, I loved that the Red Skull, and it fit. So I'm not complaining. I loved that the Red Skull was the guy who just happened to have an adamantine mummy case laying around in case he needed to encase an enemy yeah. in something. And that's what I that's what I was talking about earlier. Like this feels like a nineteen not even a nineteen forties pulp story, a nineteen thirties pulp story. The nineteen forties pulps were a little more advanced, but the thirties pulps, it's like, yeah, just let's just go. Um, and sometimes that's fun storytelling. Um, I think if if two really talented creators who love it kind of just say let's wing it and just have as much fun as possible it can work didn't work as much this time because I don't really think they didn't seem to want to be having fun I've read very few stories where as many things happen Paul Tobin thank you so much again for joining us and I swear as doom is my witness we will never ever again record an episode of this podcast outdoors especially next to traffic Next week, Kaythor Jensen joins me to talk about Incredible Hulk number 143 and 144. 
The Voice of Lockeria podcast is made possible by the... <laughs> Tremble, Lockerian fools. Dare you send your so-called Dr. Doom against me? Who dares stand against the all-consuming sonic sponge? <laughs>